On this episode of Theology for the People, I speak with Benjamin Morrison. Ben is a missionary and pastor in Svitlovodsk, Ukraine. He is also a leader for the City to City Network in Ukraine and in Europe. I got to know Ben back when I was living in Hungary, pastoring there, and we've kept in touch over the years. In this episode, Ben is going to give us an update on what is happening in Ukraine and how God is working, even in the midst of a devastating war. Prior to the war in Ukraine, Ben was studying biblical interpretation for his master's at London School of Theology, which is my alma mater, and he was on a previous episode talking about hermeneutics. I hope you'll be encouraged and informed by this discussion that we had. Here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. I'm joined today by Pastor Ben Morrison. Ben, you and I have known each other for several years. I'm thinking it's got to be over 10 years now that we've known each other. Oh, definitely over 10. Yeah, yeah, worked together. And so, Ben, please introduce yourself, who you are, where you serve, etc. Yeah, so I'm Benjamin Morrison. I live and serve in Ukraine in a city called Svitlovodsk, which is in central Ukraine. I'm the planter and pastor of Calvary Chapel of Svitlovodsk. Besides that, I'm also the director of City to City Ukraine, which is an organization that trains church planters for city renewal, and also the training coordinator for City to City Europe. Great. And Ben, for our listeners' sake, where are you right now? I am in Ukraine currently, in our city. Okay. And so I want to hear more about that, but tell me a little bit about what has happened since the war began in your life and in your ministry? It's been radically changed. We didn't have some kind of a strategy to do refugee relief, humanitarian mass humanitarian aid projects. But on February 24th, we were woken up as people all across Ukraine were by either the sound of explosions or the news of them. And Russia's full-fledged invasion began. My wife and I knew about the possibility of Russia's attack. I, as a U.S. citizen, have been receiving emails from the U.S. consulate here since the beginning of January saying, at first, consider leaving, and then it moved to, we recommend leaving, and then it was, right before it was, we strongly urged to get out by any means possible. Right up until the 24th, though, I, like most Ukrainians, I think, really didn't expect that it would actually happen. Russia had built up troops a few times before that and then backed down. But this time, obviously, they didn't back down. Um, But we, my wife and I, we had talked and prayed and just come to the decision that if it does happen, we need to be here. We need to stay here and serve the people. And if we take off, who's going to, who's going to be here to minister hope to them and That was our decision. I have another friend who's a pastor here in Ukraine, also has been here through the whole war, but I think he put it well that there's no right answer. There's just what God is calling you to. It's not to say that everybody should have done this or that. It's that this is what God called us to. And so myself, my wife, our two kids, we've been here the whole time during this war, these almost 11 months now. The very first day, we had just a flood of refugees trying to get out, heading west. Our city happens to be at a major crossroads especially during the first month while Kiev was surrounded. People weren't going through Kiev. So we were at this major crossroads for people going west from eastern Ukraine. Uh, So we had people coming to our church, some of them even only stopping for a few hours. Things were crazy. It took what was normally like a three or four hour drive to Kharkiv, took 
12 and 16 hours just because of the amount of cars trying to get out. So people were getting there sometimes empty on fuel. We had literally cars that came with their windows shot out bullet holes in the cars. And we, in God's providence, we had acquired a church building that we were working on for a number of years and was actually only ready to use starting last year, or excuse me, 2021, and we're now in 2023, um, but just in time. And we were able to receive people, give them a place to sleep in the church building, feed them, and that just became our all day, every day, ministering to just these thousands of refugees coming through. At first, coming and then just staying one day and then moving on very quickly. And then as time went on, some of them started staying longer. And not only feeding them, giving them a place to stay, but also sharing the message of hope in Christ with them. And we've we've been blessed to see there's been just through our church, and we're only one of hundreds or even thousands of other, you know, Protestant churches doing similar things here. We've seen over 50 people come to faith in Christ during these last 11 months. That's more than a person a week. I've never seen this kind of spiritual revival. And it's a reminder that what, as Joseph said, what, what the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. Um, and it's a reminder that the victory is Christ's in the end. And we're certainly praying that that will be manifest fully soon on the battlefield as well here in Ukraine. So, you know, your city, are you relatively safe? I know, but that relative is a pretty significant relative, isn't it? I know that there have been attacks near you as well. Yeah, because we're a smaller town and because we're central Ukraine, uh, they were primarily targeting the big cities in the beginning and then obviously around sort of the northern, the eastern, the southern borders, which touch on, on at least close to Russian territory. So we're in central Ukraine. The front line, as far as like the possibility of invasion, the first days things moved fast and nobody really knew how far things would get. We were, I remember checking multiple times a day, troop movements to see, you know, how close are they? Is there still a road to get out if we need to? And when they were driven out of the first place in the north, the people saw why the name of the suburb of Kiev, Bucha, has now become known throughout the world through just because of the horrendous tortures and rapes and mass executions of civilians that Russian troops committed there. But that's not only there, that was just the first name that has been hundreds of other places just like that, and unfortunately still are in the occupied territories. Nobody knew in the beginning how far that would get, but once once the Russian troops got pushed out all the way out of the north, away from Kiev, away from Chernigov, then it felt like there was a little bit more breathing room. Obviously still not easy, but because we were where our city is located, it was in this pocket. There was troops on three or four sides. And so we always had to check that that western side to make sure that things weren't getting too close. So yeah, that's that's the reality. We our city thankfully was not bombed for the first 250 days of the war. This fall, when Russia started targeting our energy infrastructure, we do have some energy infrastructure in the city because we're situated on a hydroelectric dam. Our city became a target at that point. It has been bombed two two or three times now. And uh, yeah, the first time we were woken up by our house literally shaking the blast, the shockwaves, it was not a fun way to wake up. Mm -hmm. For many Ukrainians, they woke up that way on February 24th. So in a way, we were fortunate that we'd had all that time to kind of be mentally, you know, prepared to, to realize what was happening, not just be completely shocked by it. And we always knew it was a possibility. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it, like you said, it's relative safety. There, one of our church members, there was some, some shrapnel from one of those two explosions that landed on and ruined his car. It's, it's not that far away, but there are certainly more dangerous places in Ukraine, no doubt, particularly along the eastern and southern front lines. Yeah, I know that you're right on the Dnieper River. Do you have bridges that still cross the river where you're at? Yeah, there's, there are, yeah, there are bridges. So we're on the western bank, which means that we, even if, let's say, things got crazy, which at this point, it, it doesn't become clear that Russia's not doing well on the ground. They keep losing territory, which we're hoping that trend continues all the way to the legal borders of Ukraine. But even in the beginning, that was helpful because if we were on the other side of the river, then there was really only two two ways to get west that were anywhere close to us. Well, tell us, Ben, what does everyday life look like for you and your family right now? Like I said, it's changed over the months. Um, the beginning, our all day, every day, early morning to late at night was receiving refugees, feeding them. We didn't, we didn't have an infrastructure. We didn't have like a system for funneling hundreds and thousands of refugees. So we had to figure it out all as we went. But it was beautiful to see the church just plug in and realize the time that we're in. We did have, we'd certainly had a portion of our members that chose to evacuate further west or on into Europe, but the majority of them stayed and just plugged in to serve all these people that were coming to us. And more and more as time went on, people stayed longer. Eventually the west of Ukraine really started to fill up and it wasn't very easy for people to even find places there anymore. So they started looking for other options and our city became one of those options because like I said, it hadn't been bombed directly and for the first 250 days. People were, we were helping people find long-term housing in the city, search out apartments. We shifted our focus more from feeding people in the building to regular humanitarian food aid, which we're still doing. So we're feeding two and a half thousand people a month at this point giving out food aid packages. And we've expanded it now so that we're covering not just our city, but also some of the surrounding villages where refugees have been resettled. And we're the only organization of any kind doing that in our city, including the government. The government gives them the one-time aid thing when they first drive, but it's not regular. So we've actually developed a really good relationship with the mayor's office, the city administration. So they, when people, new refugees come, they send people to us. And we're able to obviously help take care of their physical needs, but also to share the hope of Christ with them as the opportunity presents, offer to pray for them, just try to encourage them. One of the things I've been hearing from some of the guys I talked to in Ukraine is that, like you're describing your city with demographics changing and things like that, populations moving, that really the need for Christian work and perhaps even church planting isn't something that's just going to happen in the future but it's even something that's actively needed right now. What are your thoughts on that and observations? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Like I said, I mentioned earlier that we've seen 50 plus people come to faith in Christ just over these 11 months. And that's, again, that's a trend that's repeating everywhere. In the midst of crisis, people tend to, to ask hard and deep questions, to seek some kind of a, a foundation that can't be shaken when everything else is being shaken. And so God in his providence is using even this. Every time Satan tries to do something, he ends up shooting himself in the foot, of which the cross is the ultimate proof. 
um, people are really coming coming to Christ in just amazing waves of like I've never seen, which means that there's lots of new believers, which means there's a need for lots of churches, lots of ministers, both deed ministry, obviously, with all the humanitarian needs, but also word ministry, giving people the the hope of the gospel. Yeah, so it's not that this like ministries on pause or even church planting with city to city Ukraine, we normally take a new group of planters to train in the spring. That's our registration period. Obviously this spring was the early, early days of the war. And so we were thinking, do we even try to get together a group to do some training of these planters in these conditions? Um, but as we talk to people, the work of church planting is going forward. We've got Ukrainian guys who are planting new churches. There's also a great need also because of just the mass movement of people going to cities. Even my city has, the population has sold by 20, 25%. Mm -hmm. So even just that influx of people alone is a reason for really seriously considering church planting. And that's, that's the case in a lot of places, obviously not everywhere. There are cities in the East, particularly along the front lines that at this stage, they've all but emptied. There's still a few people there usually elderly retirees that are 80 years old and they're not going anywhere. I've lived here all my life and I'm going to die soon anyway, who knows. But although there's not probably a lot of people moving to those places to plant because the proper thing would be to evacuate out, um, but there are still people living there. So there's a lot of churches, ministers that are going into those places, taking trips in to bring humanitarian aid, to share the gospel with the people that are there. And as the Lord allows, even start Bible studies. I've heard of these things happening as well. Mm. Yeah, so the need is great. It's greater probably than before the war. But uh, yeah, the Lord is doing in the midst of darkness a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine that with many of those cities, they won't be initially like, even if the war were to end today, it's not like you could just move back. There's oftentimes so, so many residences have been destroyed, things like that. Infrastructure's gone. It's going to be a long time and a lot of work to do even after the war is over. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on which particular town, the level of destruction. There are people, obviously, during the early days of the war when Kiev was surrounded and when the suburbs of Kiev were occupied, like Bucha, Irpin, that evacuated out. And, and But when the Russians got pushed out, they, they waited a while. Obviously, it wasn't safe because it's just this mentality of death and destruction. Even when the Russians were going out, like they mined everything. They put explosive traps in washing machines. It's just, it's genocidal, not to put it directly and exactly what it is. They're not just targeting military targets. They're attempting to cause ma massive casualties among the civilian population. So yeah, so rushing back even... The army and our government says if there are places newly liberated, taken back by Ukraine, that people shouldn't immediately rush there. It needs to be at least demined, checked for safety stuff. But even with a place like Kharkiv, which was never, Kharkiv itself was never taken, but everything around it, much like Kiev, was occupied. But now, after they've been pushed out of that whole area, you do have actually quite a few people already going back, trying to rebuild, even though the rocket strikes aren't over. But you do have people going back. And certainly that was the case in Kiev. Lots of people have come back now. Yeah. So it's hard. To s I heard at one point, I believe it was Chernigov, which was fully surrounded, but also never fully occupied. The mayor, after the North was liberated, said that it'll take at least four years to, to fully restore 
the city and to undo all the damage. So yeah, in that sense, it will be a long process. But Ukrainians, as the world has now noticed, are very resilient and have headed back in, are already repairing and restoring. It's really beautiful. Ben, prior to the war, you were pursuing a master's degree in biblical interpretation. We had talked about that on an early episode of this podcast. Now, how has your faith and doctrine, let's put it this way, like been put to use in a positive sense? And what are some ways in per- which has perhaps been put to the test? With my seminary specifically, it's been put to the test because I've had to pause. Pa- pause. I was on the dissertation phase, but obviously have a few other things on my plate at the moment. Yeah, you believe in things like doctrinally, obviously, and they're a source of of joy and of comfort in the day-to-day nor- normalcy of life, like the linchpin of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Christ. But it's one thing to believe that there is victory over death as a general doctrinal point. It's another thing to believe that when there's bombs exploding around you. And before before the war, as we were thinking through what our actions would be and made this the decision, my wife and myself, that for us anyway, like we feel that we are called to stay and to serve people in the midst of this and could a bomb or whatever else at that time we didn't know occupation, etc. Could we end up dead? Yeah. Uh, but Christ defeated death. And do we really believe that? Is it is it just a point or is it something that? is real to our hearts. And that's something that, yes, there's the doctrinal point without which there can be no hope, but it can't be just a doctrinal point either. It has to be prayed deep into your heart. It has to be relied upon in a very real way in the midst of a situation like this, or not only this, when your doctor says stage four cancer, right? That's just as real of a threat on a personal level that death could come for you pretty quickly, but do truly believe in those doctrines that you ascribe to. Yeah, in that sense, it's not like there was some new doctrinal revelation. It's really more just about those truths becoming more real, being rooted more deeply to where it actually is something that gives you strength, gives you confidence, even in the midst of the threats that surround you. I think sometimes I've heard people downplay doctrine as if they would portray it as a distraction from what you might call a practical faith that feels and does, right, if you will, a love affair with God as opposed to just following a bunch of doctrinal formulas and having that kind of dry faith, if you will, as some people say. What would you say to that in light of your current situation? I would say it's a false dichotomy because certainly there is a way to hold to doctrines in in simply an intellectual ascent, a very dry way, but then not actually connect those truths to your heart. Let's say that you believe that your acceptance in Christ is what fulfills you and that's what gives you worth. But if that's not real to your heart, you can say, yeah, I believe in in salvation and kind of the acceptance before God through Christ. But in reality, because it's not connected to my heart, I'm going to become a workaholic and try to seek approval from my bosses or from my colleagues because that's more real to my heart. And so you've sealed off what you say you believe in in this little intellectual checkbox up in your head. But when it comes to what do you live, what's your motivation, how are you living, that 
that doctrine has not gone deep. And so the answer is not, oh, that those kinds of situations exist, therefore doctrine is not important. No, those kinds of ex situations exist, therefore doctrine has to go deeper. It has to be connected not just to your head or to your official kind of doctrinal statement, it has to be connected to your heart. Um, without, like I was saying, without doctrine, and in, in the example I used, without the doctrine of the resurrection of the Son of God, and that there is a victory over death, what without that direction, what else are you going to hope in? I don't know, just some sort of weird, naive optimism that you draw up on your own. So you can have doctrine without experience, uh, and then you're functionally turning to something else, some other god, really, whether it's your work to gain your approval or relationships or whatever else it might be. But you can't have real Christian experience without doctrine. Because then you're just, I don't know what you're doing. You're just kind of generating your own emotions based on what. So these are not things that can be separated. Even this head-heart dichotomy that we've generally latched onto in, in the Western world, that's a bit of a foreign way of thinking as far as the Bible's concerned, particularly in the Old Testament. It's not brain over there, emotions over there. It's this integrated center of you are this intellectual emotional volitional being and that's what you know when christ even restates the very first commandment is to love the lord your god with all your heart mind and soul strength it's all part of the same whole yeah so this separation of doctrine over here experience over there if you separate them from each other doctrine without experience is dry and dead yeah but experience without doctrine is dangerous first of all and really has no strong foundation that's going to last when there are real trials that enter into your life, like a war or like cancer. What do you think are some of the theological questions that people in Ukraine are struggling through and working through right now? Obviously, we have been through a lot of suffering. Those that, in a sense, when you go through something like Bucha and just that, that blatant evil that the Russian army brought, how do you sort through that with Christ, with the gospel? And there is an answer to it, which is that Christ himself has come, has suffered big torture, right? He is the compassionate high priest. He's not, he's not somewhere abstracted from our suffering. He's felt it in his own being. As far as struggling with, oh, what should we do in that sense? I don't know that there's a lot of struggling in this particular case. Back when this war started, which was actually 2014, this is now just part two of the same war, there, originally there was some theological wrestling among a lot of Ukrainian Christians with the concept of, is it okay to defend your country? Because a lot of the larger evangelical movements, at least in this country, had more historically been pacifist. And so there was some struggling with, what does it look like to be a Christian, to be also a citizen of your country, these concepts of just war, you know, that obviously for our case, on our side of things, it's just trying to defend our families from being destroyed, which in any concept is certainly a just war. It's, I think it's a much harder question in a way, not a question, but a harder challenge for Christians who are in Russia, because there's no way that you can believe in the gospel and justify 
Bucha. Justify shooting rockets at civilian housing happened just a, just a couple days ago in Dnipro, and now there's 30 people dead. There was a woman who came to our church on Sunday, and one of her friends was killed in that strike. So I, I don't see how anyone can even pretend. Obviously, people do pretend there are some such persons in Russia to be a Christ follower and yet to somehow justify this war of aggression, of actions, bombing civilian targets and whatnot. I will say that at least of the number of pastors, ministers that I know in Russia who are solidly rooted in the gospel, who I would say have a true deep understanding of the gospel, there's not a one of them that support this war on Russia's side. They're all supportive of Ukraine. Some, now, some of them are more vocal about it, even publicly on social media. Some of them are more careful about what they say publicly. I'm aware of one particular minister who, in the very beginning days of the war, the FSB, Russia's secret service, the equivalent of the FBI, if you will, um, came to him and said, if you start publicly talking against this war, we'll send your son to the front. That guy has to be careful with the ways that he says, but he clearly understands that the Russian authorities and Putin's Russia, in that sense, is an evil. It's just how do you go about being faithful to Christ when you're living under an antichrist, as I asked one of my friends who's also a pastor in Russia. So I think for the people on that side, it's actually much more of a challenge in a sense of how do we navigate this? I think there are clear lines of how they can't navigate it, which is to support it or to ignore it. But what are the ways that it looks like to engage in a, in a Christ-honoring opposition to a demonic, in reality, campaign ruler? That's not easy. And obviously, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from Bonhoeffer, who lived in a similar situation right under Hitler in Germany, but trying to be faithful against him. Bonhoeffer obviously took it to, took it about as far as you can go in attempting to be part of assassinating Hitler. But, and that's not to say that every Christian in Russia ought to be directly involved in that sense of trying to take out Putin, but certainly opposed in their spirit and to some degree in their words and their actions to clear evil. Yeah, I could imagine that some of the pastors there would be in this situation, or some of the Christians in Russia, where they would say, hey, look, I live in a country of 200 million people. I don't make any decisions about what my country does. That's what my government does, and I'm a citizen of this country. And yet I have the opportunity as a pastor, as a Christian, to minister and meet real felt needs on the ground. And I was just telling you before we got on the recording about a conversation my wife had with a pastor's wife in Russia and describing how her husband is going and ministering to military, Russian military, and to refugees, many of these people, perhaps not refugees out of choice, but sometimes being forced out of their country in Ukraine and forced into relocating into Russia. And I think that was really hard for us to process at first, just to think, wait a second, you're ministering to these people, some of whom are perpetrating evil. And then on the other hand, though, realizing, okay, if we take it to another sense, you're ministering to 18-year-old kids who have been put into a war against their will with no other way to turn, in some cases if they couldn't flee, and who are underserved, meaning they don't have proper clothing, they don't have proper food. And on that sense, it makes sense, but man, that's a tough position to be in. Yeah, I don't know any details of 
what exactly this particular pastor was doing as far as ministry. As you mentioned, there are lots of forcibly relocated Ukrainians within Russian territory because that was one of the many strategies that the Kremlin is using in trying to basically get actual Ukrainians out of the territory that, the, that they control in Ukraine, ship them to sometimes very remote locations within Russia, which is, by the way, it's, it, it was less than 150,000 before the war. It's now even less. The reality is that here's the thing. Anybody who's looking at it and judging it honestly within Russia, any, anybody who I think still has some form of a conscience left, Putin is a curse and a blight, not just on Ukraine. He's a curse and a blight on Russia. His choices have led to the deaths of over 100,000 Russian, mostly young men. It's led to the, the wounding of hundreds of thousands of Russian men. It's led to the emptying of the country. There was, when they announced their quote-unquote partial mobilization, there was hundreds of thousands of Russians, again, mostly men, that fled the country. And there were many more that fled before that. So first of all, there's less and less people left in Russia, thanks to Putin. But he's destroying the country. He's certainly destroying our country, that's obvious. But he's also destroying his own country. And any, anybody who would, let's say, be a Russian, and all the more if they are a Christian, um, if they care not only about of justice and morality in Ukraine, but even about their own country, they ought to be praying and speaking to some degree against what the Kremlin is doing now because it's destructive on all sides. As far as somebody who would go and minister to, to Russian military, on the one hand, yeah, you and I were talking, Nick, I mean, there's a reason that hundreds of thousands of men fled Russia. It's because they didn't want to be drafted into the army. There are many hundreds of thousands more who would have left if they could have, but they just didn't have the means or whatever. At the same time, Again, because we said it's harder on that side, like for us in Ukraine, in this particular instance, in this particular war, at this point of history, it's easier. It's the questions are easier because the war on our side is a war of defense. It's a war to defend our homes. It's a just war. And so in that sense, we don't have to navigate these very difficult things. We can say that it is just, and we're in a sense going similar directions, right? Ukraine is and the cause of justice or something that would be acceptable in a theological and moral sense. Whereas obviously in, in Russia, it's the opposite that they have, they have to be opposed, as I said before, to this kind of just demonic destruction and, um, yeah. So it isn't easy at the same time, I guess I would say my biggest question to some pastor who would go and minister to Russian military would be, what is he saying to them? If he's telling them to repent, if he's telling them that what they're about to do is evil and they need to turn from it and believe in the gospel, then yeah, then that's exactly what he should be telling them. But if he's going there and he's praying that the Lord would bless their endeavors, I mean, which, which endeavors? The ones where they bomb civilian housing in Ukraine or the ones where they come and rape our women? That's, that is, to put it bluntly, that's apostasy. That's not anything even close too acceptable for somebody calling themselves a Christian minister. So, yeah. Again, I would hope that whoever this person is that you're talking about would actually have spoken truth about good and evil. But unfortunately, the reality is there are churches in Russia that that are supportive of this war of evil. And that's it's in reality, it's an apostate church. It's much, it's again, there's there is a lot to be gained 
looking at the historical situation of Nazi Germany because there are a lot of similarities. It's the same thing with the German state church at that time. They all backed it. Not all of them. Obviously, there was the confessing church that sort of separated. It's a small minority, but they were the ones that stayed true to Christ, whereas the German state church, by and large, was either silent or supportive. And lo and behold, as a result of all that, the German state church, with a few very rare exceptions, is pretty spiritually bankrupt. And I have a lot of friends in Germany who are pastors who can say that quite clearly. Um, I think there were, will certainly, th there's no situation where this turns out well for Putin. This, the, there's no way that this ends with just, oh, we go back to normal and he's part of the community of nations like that. That's just not going to happen. Whether it's a Hitler-like scenario where he just eventually realizes he's losing and takes himself out. Or whether one of, as has happened actually to quite a few Russian oligarchs at this point that have spoken out against the war, they've had quote-unquote accidents falling out of windows mysteriously because that's how Putin rolls. So whether it's he has his own little accident or some analysts have talked about a real possibility is that Russia itself in its current form as a state does not survive this and that there's some breaking up. So however that all plays out, there will be an ultimate reckoning for this, obviously before God, but I think also here in history. And what will those churches who were either completely silent and pretended not to notice or not be involved, or even more of those who were supportive, what will they have to say for themselves? And again, I think probably st studying through what happened in World War II is perhaps quite helpful. I was talking to some people yesterday. I was out at lunch with some friends, and they were basically saying, many of them were saying, oh, I know that there's still something going on in Ukraine, but I heard something about the Russians fleeing and Ukraine advancing, and that was basically the end of it. And they're like, so what is going on in Ukraine? And I ended up pulling up on my phone and showing them video of the building in Dnipro that was bombed on Saturday, I believe, this past Saturday, which would be, for our listeners, that would be January 14th. And just there's no, no way to look at that image of a residential building on a Saturday evening being blown in half and, and say that this is somehow justifiable. And oh, here's what I would ask you just for our listeners' sake is to say, okay, how can people keep up to date on what is happening? Why does it matter if they keep up to date? And also, what would you want people to know? Like a, a final statement. How can they keep up? Don't just watch the TV, I guess, is a way to start. TV news is generally more about entertainment than about actual reporting. So read news, first of all. Don't read, I don't know how to put this without, because nobody who reads like the extreme crazy stuff thinks that they're crazy and extreme. Try to read, you know, really, Ukraine, the Ukrainian government is actually putting out like plenty of updates and stuff without kind of people's bents and hot takes on things. It's just actual facts on the ground. So that's one way. But most of, if you just stick to even center of the road reporting on Ukraine, go, just type in Google News Ukraine, you'll get plenty of stuff to follow on what's happening on the ground. I'm not saying that everybody among your listeners needs to follow with every troop movement. Obviously, we're following quite closely because it's that's our life and death. That's our church members and our brothers and fathers and sons on the front line. So, yeah, we do follow it closely. But it matters. Uh, first of all, it matters. I think people listening to a podcast called Theology for the People are probably Christians. 
it matters in God's economy because God is a God who loves justice, who loves righteousness. He hates evil. He hates destruction. Read some of the imprecatory psalms, which we in Ukraine have learned to pray these last 11 months quite often, where, where David is talking about breaking out the teeth of the wicked, rejoicing, even using these phrases that when you're not in a war, they actually read that and you're like, whoa, David, slow down there. Bath bathing your foot, your feet in the blood of your enemy. But that's a poetic way of saying that you're rejoicing in their destruction. Not that destruction in itself is great, but the, that their evil has been stopped. So even on a theological level, people who are Christians ought to care about issues of justice. And this is a clear one. On, on, on a, let's say, pragmatic level, it's been stated, and this is not an overstatement, that this is, this right now, historically, politically, what's being decided is the post-World War II order. Post-World War II, a lot of things shifted. We, these concepts that we take for granted today of human rights and democracy and people can't just go in as a stronger country and destroy a smaller country because they want to the ending of colonialism and empires taking over other states. These things that we all take for granted, a lot of that was decided in, a, in its current form, at least post-World War II. This war will decide if that continues and if the questions of human rights, democracy, autonomy of nations, if these things are actually matter enough that the world says, yes, we want to continue in this way, or if, God forbid, that Russia were to gain some form of victory out of this, that, oh, okay, so that kind of approach to just mass destruction, evil, destroying of human life, that's successful. So on a, on a purely political level, in, in a Western country might think, oh, Ukraine's over there, why does this matter to me? Because if the world order shifts, A, potentially, if it's a country that's closer to us, like Poland or Latvia, you're next. And they all realize that's why they've been so supportive of Ukraine, particularly these countries that are near us on our Western border, because they realize they could easily be next. But ultimately that will spill out into, there's this Kremlin propagated line of thinking that, oh, don't go against Russia because you might tick them off and it might lead to World War III. No, if you don't go against Russia, if you let them get away with this, then it will lead to World War III. Then you will have sent the message to the planet and other large actors like China, that you can do these kinds of things and get away with it, and it's successful for you, so go for it. That's what will lead to World War III. So if you actually, I mean, again, all spiritual questions aside, theological questions aside, just pragmatic, even selfish to a degree, right? Everybody in the West who values, again, these values that we take for granted, if you want those to continue, you should do everything you possibly can and encourage the government to do everything it possibly can to go against Russia, to defeat it quickly, to show that these things that Russia is doing now are not acceptable. So I guess yeah. that's my two cents on that. Okay. Ben, how can people be praying for you? And if they want to support the work you're doing with the care center and the refugees, how can they do that? Yeah. So yeah, we've been very blessed by people's generosity, wanting to help, help us serve people in Ukraine. Yeah, through their donations. We have a partner church in the U.S. that, that kind of is taking donations for us and that, that go directly to the work here in Ukraine. People can find that link. There's a shortened link. It's bit.ly slash give to Ukraine with the number two, bit.ly slash give to Ukraine. And you can make a donation on there if you're interested. 
also one thing that we've been so encouraged by is people praying for us and just around the world. I think it's pretty clear for most people, I hope, you know, which side in this war is the one that's committing atrocities and doing evil things and which one is in need of God's justice. Ultimately, I've been part of prayer meetings with pastors in Indonesia and in Brazil and China, all over the world, literally praying for Ukraine. And it's really beautiful. We're so grateful for those of you who are praying for Ukraine. Probably the obvious first request, pray for a quick victory for Ukraine. And not just the war would quote unquote stop. Sometimes people will pray, oh, may the war stop quickly. It doesn't need to just stop. It needs to stop with Ukrainian victory. Because again, if this all pans out even to a partial win for Russia, it's not going to be good for anyone. And ultimately, it, it is about God's justice being glorified over evil. Pray for a full Ukrainian victory in this war. Pray, obviously, for God's mercy and comfort for the millions who are suffering, millions of Ukrainians who have either lost their home, been forced from their homes, lost their loved ones, living under Russian occupation still. Yeah, that Christ would meet them wherever they are and that they would turn to him for hope. Specifically, prayers, obviously, I think, People have probably seen in the news that Russia's tar targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure, especially during the winter, trying to, because they're not winning on the battlefield. Russian, as your acquaintance, Nick, you mentioned that Russia's kind of getting pushed out. It is getting pushed out slowly, but surely they're not gaining ground. They're losing ground, but it's still a process and it's not done for sure. So their hope by destroying energy infrastructures to bring Ukraine to this point where it's ready to just say, oh, you can keep all that land that you've taken. Just please stop bombing our energy. Which is, A, not going to happen because every missile they fire only makes us more ready to stick it out and shows the obvious evil that we're not about to make peace with. But yeah, prayers for wisdom in protecting the energy infrastructure. Recent, some recent news from the West that they're going to provide the types of air defense systems that we really need to protect Ukrainian airspace well. There's good news. Pray that they come quickly. And yeah, and really, and this might seem odd, but it's the reality. I have not prayed for the salvation, the repentance of Russians as much in my life as I have these last 11 months. Ultimately, this is what's happening is demonic. It's not just political. It's not just a military. The motives that are motivating the Kremlin and those who are fighting on the side of the Kremlin are ultimately spiritual. So pray for God to do a miracle and open the eyes of the people committing these atrocities, that they would just see the evil that they're committing and turn in, in, in repentance and, and cease from what they're doing. Um, yeah, pray for that too. Again, like I said, with your friend who's going and ministering to Russian military, it depends what he's, depends what he's telling them. If he's telling them to repent, <laughs> that's a good thing. So yeah, pray for that as well. Ultimately, to go back quickly to the analogy with Germany in World War II, ultimately, Germany came to a point of reckoning, and they also came to a point of national repentance for what they had done, for what they had at least allowed to be done. Some of them would say, I wasn't directly involved. That doesn't matter. There was an overall national reckoning and repentance that was necessary to actually then establish a safe order within Europe. And that's similar to what will have to happen with Russia's. There will have to be a national reckoning and repentance in the sense for what they've done. And until there is, there's not going to be any safety from that corner of the world. It'll just be waiting it out until they can build up more weapons or whatever else. Uh, so yeah, so pray for that. 
All right. Thank you so much, Ben, for your time. I know that it's precious these days. So thanks for dedicating this time to sharing with our listeners about what's going on. And we'll definitely be praying for you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. And thanks to all the listeners who are praying. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If there's ever a topic you'd like to learn more about, there is a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, when new episodes are posted, they will be delivered right to your podcast app. Next week's episode is with pastor and author Dan Murata on the topic of the Lord's Prayer. We talk about the nature of prayer and how the Lord's Prayer is surprisingly subversive, how it shapes our hearts in significant ways. We also talk about how the Lord's Prayer has been used throughout Christian history and the value of extemporaneous prayer versus written prayers. If this episode was helpful, please share it with others. And if you would like to support this podcast, the best way you can do that is by leaving a written review on the Apple Podcast app. That really helps boost this show in their ratings. So if you would do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And until next time, God bless you.